Well, hello, everyone. We, um, we're going to go ahead and get started here. We are uh, discussing. Let me make sure I have everything turned on this week. Okay, good. Last week at the start, I ended up uh, speaking to myself for a while and didn't even know it because uh, I had my mic muted. So that's not the case today. So good for me. Um, tonight, we have uh, a bit of a special one. Uh, all the deep dives, as far as I'm concerned, are special. They're, they're some of my favorite ways to study church history. And um, and tonight, uh, there's kind of a series within a series, and that will be um, the deep dives that that look specifically at a single writing in church history. And so tonight, we're going to find ourselves all the way back in the first and second centuries uh, into uh, the earliest part of the apostolic church, and that is to read the writing called the Didache. There is a lot of there's a lot of writings that happened in the earliest church that kind of describe for us uh, all manner of things. Um, and uh, it really helps us to uh, delve out some of these. And uh, I will say, if you're like me, um, unless you're reading them for a class or if you're uh, or, or you're just naturally curious about these things, um, unless you are doing that, you're probably never going to really run into the Didache um, with regards to like church life. And that that's unfortunate. Um, but it's also reality. And so I'm providing a time here uh, for us to look into this. So whether you are uh, coming across this podcast or this YouTube uh, because you are, you know, trying to study for, you know, a test or something like that, uh, my my encouragement to you, it's a remarkable little uh, book. Uh, it is not that long. So when I say book, don't get too concerned. Um, it only takes about 20 minutes to read all the way through. So uh, if you're coming here to learn about it instead of, you know, reading it, um, <laughs> go read it, come back. <laughs> and, uh, but if you're here, uh, listening to this for the first time and you're never going to pick it up and you don't really know much about it, or even if you do know something about it and you want to learn a little bit more about kind of the milieu in which it comes from and, and what effect this should have on us, uh, then you land in the right place. We're going to work through the whole dedicate tonight. And uh, I know that sounds like a lot. It really is not. Uh, it's only about as long as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and it also parallels a lot of things in the Sermon on the Mount as well. And um, and so we're going to get into that tonight. Ken, you say thanks for the link. Ah, you're welcome. Yes. So if you are uh, engaging in the live discussion and watching this on YouTube, uh, in the description of the video is a link to the translation that I'm going to be using. Uh, and uh, so you can follow right along. And I'll just kind of, uh, uh, as we go along, it's it's about 16 paragraphs long. Um, it, they're divided up into chapters, but let's be honest, most of those chapters are just a single paragraph. Uh, some of them are just a single sentence. Um, so we're going to work through all of that. Uh, some a little bit more detailed than others. A lot of what I really want to pay attention to is, is the way that they engage with liturgy and describe the way they, they kind of do church. Um, but also, uh, having an, you know, worldview and all sorts of things. So fascinating stuff. Let's go ahead and get into it. If you have any questions along the way, you are more than welcome to stick them into the uh, to the live chat here. And when I see them, I will bring them up and uh, answer them best way as I can. All right. So there was a time in my Christian life where, um, you know, I, I was aware of the scriptures. I knew the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then awareness of any other writings by Christians, you know, until like the 20th century, outside of maybe Martin Luther or Augustine or something like this, was not really known by me at all. 
there was no there was no dealings with writings outside of scripture, which on the one hand is good because scripture is scripture. That's a whole nother, uh, you know, a whole nother category of writing than anything else. But there's another bad side to this. And that's kind of one of the things that I want to talk about tonight is that there is a weakness in not knowing the value of things that come before us. Obviously, this is a church history class, and so I'm going to be partial to knowledge about things in the past. Uh, but this this is a very perspective setting uh, study for us tonight. The Didache is an enormous gift to the modern church. And when I say gift to the modern church, I really mean it. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. It's it's something that gives us a a, a view into the life of a local church in a certain area in the very earliest decades of the church's existence. There are some estimates that push this writing as early as the the apostles are still alive, like in the 50s and 60s. I personally do not push it back that early. I understand the arguments for it. it makes sense. I understand. I understand. I'm going to give a very relative roundabout date of about 100. There are those who will push it to about 120. I think that's too late. That doesn't make much sense compared to some of the stuff mentioned in there. Um, so I'm going to say approximately the year 100. So um, you can think second, third generation of the church. And this is from one section of the church, uh, most likely in Syria, that is describing their perspective of how church, how liturgy, how church life, baptisms, communion, um, what what sins there are that are so significant, which ones, uh, what does the way of life look like? What does the way of death look like? Um, it and, and how do we deal with traveling ministers, you know, um, early forms of missionaries? How do we deal with uh, the different prophetic roles, the role of bishops and of deacons? It's, it's really quite fascinating because when you see this early church, this one localized church and the way that they do things and the things that they teach and think, it, it helps give dimension to our understanding of the early church, which a lot of people's concept of the early church is very one dimensional. And the Didache really does help open us up to realizing it's uh, church history, like all history, is far more complicated than we ever give it credit for. Um, so we will get into this. Let's talk a little bit about just our relationship to this text because it's an awesome text. And unfortunately for almost half of church history, it was completely not discussed or known. It was known of its existence, but as far as for engagement with it or quotations of it and so forth, very, very, very little. There are references in the first mm, 500 years of the church, 600 years of the church that listed it out, that people knew about it. Eusebius talked about it. Uh, of course, Eusebius talked about it, uh, earlier, uh, pretty early church historian. Um, not only did Eusebius talk about it, but uh, even in the in the church, just being aware of, of its existence um, was really uh, obvious as far as for uh, lists regarding the history of such things. Um, so when we when we engage with this, uh, it's easy for us to imagine that everyone was reading this and everyone was thinking about this. In fact, so much so that there's some people that talk about it as uh, though it should have belonged in the New Testament and it's uh, for some reason just not in there. Um, for any of you who have been in my theology classes, you know that that 
really irks me to talk about uh, the canon of scripture in such a way is, well, this maybe should belong in there or whatnot, as if we have the power to do that. Um, canon issues aside, I'll just say it just in passing, the canon of scripture, it is scripture because God wrote it. It is not scripture because we decided it, but that's a whole nother discussion. God did not write the Didache, evidenced by the fact that it is not in scripture and the church has never seen it as scripture. Nobody has. Uh, you know, one group here, one group there, maybe certainly did, uh, but this was in no wise throughout the church's consideration scripture. This was obviously the work of humans, uh, but a faithful work of humans uh, and, and taking into account the way that they do things, the descriptions for which they do, and they're trying to help other churches see scripture and see uh, their responsibility towards all these things, the habits of the Christian life from a certain perspective. And for that end, it is a good work to do so. Um, when I say it was lost to a lot of church history, here's the thing. The last time that we know of that it was copied down in the medieval era was in the uh, in the early 1000s. And then it was put into a library in Constantinople, and we never heard it quoted from again. And no other manuscripts that we've come across, uh, I'm sure there were others because we haven't found everything yet, but no other manuscripts were copied. So we, we have, for the first thousand years of its existence, we have copies here and there, and people are obviously familiar with it and make reference to it. But then for some reason, obviously, the medieval period, there was a lot of things that gained popularity, and there's a lot of other things that fell away from popularity. This was one of those that fell away from popularity. It just kind of became part of the, the old history of the church. Well, for the next 800 years, we only knew of the Didache from the quotations in the early church fathers, which really was just more or less the, this work exists called the teaching of the 12. That's what the Didache, that's what Didache means, by the way, teaching, it, uh, the teaching. It's the teaching of the 12 apostles, right? And we only knew it by its name. And we knew a couple of things that maybe it referenced based on where this was quoted from and so forth, but no engagement of it because once that last manuscript was copied and put away into a library, that was the end of it, as far as we can tell at this point. And the text of it was lost to our common knowledge until the 1870s. It's only 150 years ago. The 1870s, a researcher actually came across it in the library in Constantinople, the Library of the Holy Sepulchre, and came across it and realized what he was holding in his hand was uh, a manuscript that included several early church documents, but most importantly, a complete text of the Didache, something that nobody knew existed anymore. We thought it was completely lost to history, but it wasn't. He took about 10 years to work through it, translate it and everything like this, and then published and we all of a sudden in the early 1800s, 1883, I believe was when it was first published to, to uh, the mainstream concept of researchers. So only 140 years ago. And all of a sudden we, we have this, this little window back into the early church that we have never had before. We've only had like, you know, fourth hand accounts of things. And then all of a sudden we get a first hand account given to us from a 800 year old, uh, 850 year old manuscript that was in this library 
a remarkable find to, to be sure. Uh, it's it's kind of on one of those levels as far as for the study of early church history. This is kind of like Dead Sea Scroll level uh, of importance. So what that is for textual variance and translation and transmission, transmission, this is for early church studies. We we get uh, a remarkable book from so early on that describes the way of Christian living uh, from the early church. Uh, absolutely astonishing. And uh, we get appeal back into the way they think and the way that they work. Now, um, that doesn't mean that everything in here is perfect. No, it's not scripture, but it is a representative of the church early on. Uh, really awesome stuff. And um, and I'm really excited about getting into it with you tonight. So uh, if you are following along, um, if you're listening to the podcast later on, which I know several hundred people do. So um, you, if, if you're listening to this, you're not going to be able to visualize this. So um, if you're listening to this and you want to follow along to the text, um, what you can do is go to earlychurchwritings.com and and search for the Didache. It's really, uh, really simple to actually find on there. Um, it's one of the earliest ones on the, on the breakdown. Uh, the Didache will be uh, oh, it's about tenth from the top at early church, early Christian writings, uh, dot com, and I'm going to be doing the, um, I believe I'm doing the Roberts Donaldson translation. Yes, I am the Roberts Donaldson translation. So if you want to follow along, really simple. If you're watching the YouTube channel, the links in the uh, description right there. So um, I really want to get us into this because there's not a lot of people who, in teaching this, will actually walk you through the text. So I want to do that because I'm different and weird. Uh, let's get into it. Section one. This will take up the first six chapters, or as I'll really say, the first six paragraphs. The way of life versus the way of death. This is this is a remarkable way that the Didache will actually frame its entire uh, argument, is that there are two paths in life. There's the way that leads to life, and there's the way that leads to death. And what's really fascinating about this is they'll never talk about it as this one instance is death. They will talk about it as a path. It's it's lust leads to adultery, leads to death. You see that? And and good habits over here lead to better habits in the future, leads to life. It, it is this it's this long form, multifaceted uh, perspective of life in every single way. And you'll see this from the very opening. So they'll write about. Uh, the way that they view life. And so um, really important for us. So let's kind of get into this and see what this early church is talking about itself. Now, again, to get your setting, right? The, the, the epistles, the book of Acts, the book of Matthew and Luke, obviously are both written at this point because they, uh, this quotes them. Um, and it's, it's within about 40 years based on how I'm uh, doing this, it's about a generation after the, the majority of those are written. Uh, the Gospel of John, the, the the works of John, maybe even the book of Revelation of John, uh, Revelation of Jesus Christ, rather, uh, written by John. If those are all in the 90s, or if that one's in the 90s, the other ones are in the 80s or whatnot, this is within like 10 years of that. So we are we're quite early on. But certainly enough time, as we have seen all through the time, for wrong teachings and what to get in. So we'll talk about how to interact with this text later. Let's see this. The two ways. It starts off, chapter one, paragraph one. There are two ways, one of life, one of death. But a great difference between the two ways. The way of life, then, is this. 
First, you shall love God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And do not do to another what you would not want done to you. Now, stop for a second. What did we just read? What was the connection here? The way of life, the writer includes, uh, you shall love the Lord your God who made you. This is this is obviously a callback to the greatest commandment. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. That is the second commandment. And do not do to another what you would not want done to you. That is the negation side of the uh, the golden rule that is that shows up in the Sermon on the Mount. So instead of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's do not do to another what you would not want done to you. But this is a marrying of, of Deuteronomy and Matthew put together and saying this encapsulates the way of life, the way that leads to life. So obviously law is a huge part of this. And uh, as, as we'll go into this, you'll see even more. And of these sayings, he says, the teaching is this, bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you. For what reward is there for loving those who love you? Do not the Gentiles do the same, but love those who hate you and you shall not have an enemy. Abstain from fleshly and worldly lusts. If someone strikes your right cheek, turn to him, the other also, and you shall be perfect. If someone impresses you to go a mile, go with him too. If someone takes your cloak, give him also your coat. If someone takes from you what is yours, ask for it not back, for indeed you are not able. Now, anyone who's familiar with the Gospels will know exactly where this is coming from. This is coming straight from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when when Jesus is saying almost every single one of these, and some of them just word for word quotations, um, you know everything from striking on the cheek, everything from going another mile, and uh, not asking for things back, and all that kind of stuff. It is it is uh, assessing to other churches what this church is saying. This is how living works as a Christian. This is what Christian living is, and it it ends at life. It does not end at death, like all other paths. Right. Um, right. So let's keep back, get back into this. Give to everyone who asks you and ask for not back for the father wills that to all should be given of our own blessings. Happy is he who gives according to the commandment for he is guiltless. Woe to him who receives for if one receives who has need, he is guiltless. But he who receives not having need shall pay the penalty. Why he received and for what? And coming into confinement, he shall be examined concerning the things which he has done, and he shall not escape from there until he pays back the last penny. And also concerning this, it has been said, let your alms sweat in your hands until you know to whom you should give. Now, that ends the first chapter, uh, which is one of the longest ones, by the way. Now, all of a sudden, we have more things added to the Sermon on the Mount, added to the first and the second commandments. This is not just, you know, love God and love neighbor and do not do to those that you would not want done to you. It is, it, it and, and all of the things that Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we have kind of the ramifications from that. And this is the typical way that the, the Didache will talk is, um, nothing is reasoned out just a single level. Is this good or bad? It's, does the outcome of this lead to a good outcome? Does the direction of this go? And that's something that I will say that kind of multi-level reasoning does not really go on in our culture very often. We will typically in our Christian culture, we will typically look at something and go, is this a good thing to do or a bad thing to do? We will never really sit down and go, we will try to make a moral statement about that just based on its ontological place. We really won't usually come out 
and say, well, how does this actually bear out given enough time? You know, that's that that's that aspect of wisdom that uh, is it's really trying to get into. And this is this is one of the things that's great about the Didache is it'll um, it'll work into all aspects of morality and church life, the the deep wisdom of the scriptures. And, and it's something that is really a quite quite a good goal to work towards, uh, one that we don't see very often. Okay, let's go to this second uh, paragraph here. Chapter two, the second commandment, grave sins that are forbidden. Uh, the second commandment of the teaching, uh, or this is the second commandment of the teaching, right? You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit pederasty. You shall not commit fornication. None of this is new to us. You shall not steal. You shall not practice magic. You shall not practice witchcraft. Okay, so again, Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, every aspect of things, including multiple things in the New Testament, um, and uh, kind of bundling it all together and trying to describe the way of life that, that as we will see, only Christians actually can live, right? It's not just about avoiding these things. It's as a Christian, don't do these things, right? So let's keep going. You shall not practice witchcraft. You shall not murder a child by abortion. Yes, Christians have been against that for a long, long time. Uh, nor kill that which is born. You shall not covet the things of your neighbor. Again, 10th commandment. You shall not swear. That's Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. You shall not bear false witness. That's uh, the ninth commandment. You shall not speak evil. You shall, not bear, you shall bear no grudge. You shall not be double-tongued or double-minded. Again, James, uh, which is kind of the New Testament version of Proverbs. Uh, for to be double tongue is a snare of death. Now, again, here's where we're going to start to see this. Everything is going to be multi-level reasoned. Why is it that we aren't double-tongued? It's because it's a snare that leads to death. It's that kind of multi-stage reasoning out. It's, it's playing everything out and then the ramifications of everything, right? See what he says here. Your speech shall not be false nor empty, but fulfilled by deed. In other words, good um, good words are determined by their outcome. They're not determined by promises that never come to fruition, right? If, if you are saying one thing and you're doing another thing, your words were not good, even if they had good intention, right? You shall not be covetous, nor rapacious, nor a hypocrite, nor evil disposed, nor haughty. You shall not take evil counsel against your neighbor. That means when, when somebody comes in bringing you a complaint, gossip, against somebody else, you're not supposed to be taking that and just uh, uh, just accepting it whole, whole stock. You shall not hate any man, but some you shall reprove, and concerning some you shall pray, and some you shall love more than your own life. And it shows that there is, there is differentiation between relationships. There are those that we have responsibilities towards, uh, those that we uh, owe love to, those whom we owe prayer for, and those whom we shall just simply reprove. Uh, and making distinction of that is all about a wise Christian. All of the overlappings with things like James and Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount and Deuteronomy and everything like this, you, you're about to see a lot of that, a lot of that kind of mush together here in chapter three. So chapter three, paragraph three, other sins that are forbidden. Watch this. My child, again, Proverbs should come to mind. My child, flee from every evil thing and from every likeness of it. Be not prone to anger, for anger leads to murder. Again, multiple level reasoning. Be neither jealous nor quarrelsome, nor of hot temper, 
for out of all of these, murders are engendered. My child, be not a lustful one, for lust leads to fornication. Be neither a filthy talker nor of lofty eye, for out of all of these, adulteries are engendered. Remarkable, remarkable reasoning. Again, everything is multi-layered. My child, be not an observer of omens, since it leads to idolatry. Be neither an enchanter, nor an astrologer, nor a purifier, nor be willing to even look at these things, for out of all of these, idolatry is engendered. It, it's, it's talking about just a wisdom of practical living. How do we live in the midst of situations that will lead us down wrong paths? It's don't mess with it. It's a very hands-off, don't, don't address it, don't uh, you know, define yourself by this. Don't don't work into all of this stuff. Don't even, in some cases, look at it. It's not worth it. Whether it's lust or whether it's um, whether it's hateful speech or whatever the case may be, as far as these things, they lead to graver sins, right? Uh, let's see. My child, be not a liar. Why? Since a lie leads to theft. Fascinating. Be neither money-loving nor vainglorious, for out of all of these thefts are engendered. To love money, as, as even the scriptures say, right, is a root of all kinds of evil. Here they actually spell it out in the wisdom literature style. Be neither money-loving. Why? Because out of all of that, thefts come. My child, be not a murmurer, uh, since it leads to, uh, leads to the way of blasphemy. Be neither self-willed nor evil-minded, for out of all of these, blasphemies are engendered. That very nature of uh, I will engage the world, the church, the relationships I have in order to get out of them what I want, that leads to blasphemies because how quickly are we going to turn that same attitude towards God, right? Good advice. Rather, it says, be meek, since the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, again, Sermon on the Mount, going back to the Psalms as well, where Jesus is quoting from, be patient or long-suffering and pitiful uh, and guileless and gentle and good and always trembling at the words which you have heard. You shall not exalt yourself nor give overconfidence to your soul. I mean, boy, if 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 a uh, if a reminder to our own <laughs> if our own uh, uh, cultural moment, that would be a good one. Your soul shall not be joined with lofty ones, but with just and lowly ones shall it have its intercourse. Except whatever happens to you is good, knowing that apart from God, nothing came to pass. Here's where we start getting into more theological concepts. And you'll see more of these come along, uh, especially when you get into the section on liturgy here. This, this concept of uh, God's providence uh, here written in the, in the first generations of the church, outside of scripture, saying that whatever comes our way, we should consider to be good. Why? Because a good God, the good God, none of this came apart. None of this came about without His uh, bringing it. Apart from God, nothing comes to pass. These things come to pass because of God, and that that goes for difficult times and easy times. And as as they're expressing here, we should accept whatever happens to us as good. Fascinating. Good stuff. <laughs> Good stuff. So far, great. Chapter four, uh, paragraph four, if you will. Paragraph four, uh, again, continuing along the the um, the expressions of this. My child, remember night and day him who speaks the word of God to you and honor him as you do the Lord. 
this is going to be a huge aspect here. This this uh, concept of of paying attention to somebody as you would the Lord. Uh, it it is it is a remarkable thing simply because the the picture that's being put here is that um, when somebody is representing the Lord well, in other words, they're speaking the word of God or they're speaking wisdom or they're pushing you onto the way of life or pushing you onto righteousness and their lives back up their words, etc., 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 then you should treat them as you would the Lord. Obviously, this is not something that comes from scripture, but this reveals a bit about this church that is writing this. We'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later on. For wherever the lordly rule is uttered, there is the Lord. Now, I will say, and I will just have a plug in for uh, an aspect of this that I am working on in my dissertation, um, where the teachings of the Lord are faithfully uh, put forward, that is where the presence of the Lord resides. This is one of the things that Matthew makes really clear in his gospel. Um, Jesus saying, you know, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. What immediately came before that? Teach them whatsoever I commanded you. It is it is his teaching. It is his rule. His rulership is the king of the kingdom of heaven that makes his presence present everywhere that the church is. So wherever the lordly rule is uttered, there the Lord is Remarkable. And seek out day by day the faces of the saints in order that you may rest upon their words. Faithful examples of those who have gone by. Again, biblical, straightforward. Do not long for division, but rather bring those who, excuse me, uh, bring those who contend to peace. Judge righteously and do not respect persons in reproving for transgressions. Don't play favorites. Don't give people you know, a pass because they're wealthy or of high repute or anything like this. You shall not be undecided whether or not it shall be. Uh, be not a stretcher forth of the hands to receive and a drawer of them uh, back to give. If you have anything through your hands, you shall give ransom for your sins. Do not hesitate to give nor complain when you give, for you shall know who is uh, the good repayer of the hire. Do not turn away from him who is in want. Rather, share all things with your brother and do not say that they are your own. Again, Oh, next sentence is really important. For if you are partakers in that which is immortal, how much more in things which are mortal? Uh, really, really curious reasoning here. Uh, we don't have reasoning like this in scripture exact. This is kind of a, um, a a further reasoning for why we look out for the needs of each other. So again, uh, we come back to the book of James. If your brother comes up to you and he has a need and uh, you know he is hunger uh, or he is hungry and he is looking for food, you just going up to him saying, you know, the Lord bless you, be warm, be filled and go away. And then you don't give him what your what his body needs. You know, you, are you actually loving him in any way at all? And and this is this is continuing along that that road of of uh, of theory of how that actually plays out in real time in the church. Um, when when you have and notice the need that is focused here is not just any poor person. This is this is a responsibility of Christian to Christian that you share all things with your brother. Why? Why do we do this? Why are we generous with each other for each other's needs? Because we are partakers together of that which is immortal, meaning life. How much more in things which are mortal? I mean, honestly, you can't argue with reasoning. Uh, if you're partakers in eternal life together, what is a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars between you two? Right. Do not remove your hand from your son or daughter. Rather, teach them to fear. Uh, teach them the fear of God from their youth. 
Do not enjoy anything in your bitterness. Excuse me. Do not enjoin anything in your bitterness upon your bondman or maidservant who hope in the same God. Again, uh, oh, uh, lest ever they shall fear not God who is over both. For he comes not to call according to the outward appearance, but to him to whom the spirit has prepared. Really remarkable references here. Right? I mean, the expression here is that if you are a Christian who owns a bondservant or a maidservant, don't have them fear you more than they fear God. Now, this kind of reasoning will come straight out of the New Testament as well. Again, you can tell kind of first-generation digesting in the church of how to think about the world and the Christian responsibility in life. Uh, do not enjoin in bitterness. You know, don't, don't frustrate your servants. If they hope in the same God, make sure that they do not fear God uh, more than you. Why? Because you are both bondservants of God. Now, I mean, that, that kind of language comes straight out of uh, the book of Ephesians. And you bondmen shall be subject to your masters as to a type of God in modesty and fear. Yeah, uh, there should be a fear here in this in this cultural uh, relationship that existed at that point uh, for Christians who are bondservants and for Christians who are masters. You had responsibilities to one another. You shall hate all hypocrisy. Uh, let's see. You shall hate all hypocrisy and everything which is not pleasing to the Lord. Do not in any way forsake the commandments of the Lord, but keep what you have received, neither adding thereto nor taking away therefrom. In the church, you shall acknowledge your transgressions and you shall not come near for your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. So everything that the, the writer here has expressed is the way of life. If you want to live in a way that is consistent with the gospel, again, there's very practical suggestion, not even suggestion, very practical instructions for how the gospel will affect our lives. Very practical. So it's going to sound a lot like law, just rules and rules of living. Now, rules of living without the gospel just bring death. That's what the law does. But when the gospel has brought life to us, to live in accordance with that, it is helpful to have instructions. You know, it is not wrong for a Christian to say to another Christian, hey, um, don't uh, don't cheat on your wife. That's not going back to legalism. That's just saying that leads to death. You know that. You follow the one who is life himself. You should know this. And if not, let's remind ourselves of this often. The way of life. So, chapter 5, or paragraph 5, the way of death. The way of death is this. And he'll speak of this more in very condensed format. First of all, it is evil and accursed. Murders, adultery, lust, fornication, thefts, idolatries, magic arts, witchcrafts, rape, false witness, hypocrisy, double-heartedness, deceit, haughtiness, depravity, self-will, greediness, filthy talking, jealousy, overconfidence, wow, loftiness, boastfulness, uh, persecutors of the good, hating truth, loving a lie, not knowing a reward for righteousness, not cleaving to good, nor to righteous judgment, watching not for that which is good but for that which is evil. Oh, boy, that one cuts deep, doesn't it? The way of... Man, somehow I missed that when I was prepping this. That one just hit like a truckload of bricks. Look, Basically looking to the future and anticipating evil rather than looking for the good. Wow. That, that's... Boy, that hits like a ton of bricks, doesn't it? Uh, boy, I love wisdom from a different age. Uh, watching not for that which is good, but only watching for which is evil. Whew. From whom meekness and endurance are far. 
loving vanities, pursuing revenge, not pitying a poor man, not laboring for the afflicted, not knowing him who made them, murderers of children, destroyers of the handiwork of God, turning away from him who is in want, afflicting him who is distressed, advocates of the rich, lawless judges of the poor, utter sinners, be delivered children from all these. That's the way of death. Wow. Boy, I'm still I'm still kind of in in shock for some reason I missed that line when I was prepping all of this. I would have spent more time on that. What a what a what a good way to put that. Um and the final section here on the way of life over the way of death is is the the sing, uh, the two sentence long of chapter 6 against false teachers and food offered to idols. See that no one causes you to err from this way of the teaching since apart from God it teaches you. Uh, let's see for, if you are able to bear the entire yoke of the Lord, you will be perfect. But if you're not able to do this, do what you are able and concerning food, bear what you are able, but against that, which is sacrificed to idol, be exceedingly careful for it is the service of dead gods. Thus ends the first section. Now, if you come out of that going, golly, it feels like we just went through a, a conglomerate of, of Proverbs and James and the Sermon on the Mount and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and just like everything. That is exactly what you should feel like. I mean, there are lists that are pulled straight out of Galatians and Ephesians. There are uh, challenges from James. There are informed, obviously, from Matthew, multiple sections in Matthew. Uh, you have the Psalms. You have the Proverbs. You have Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Exodus. It is an incredible way to kind of distill the way of life versus the way of death. A very Jewish way of thinking, by the way. Um, because, again, Christianity comes out of a Judaistic thought you have two different paths in life. Either go towards life or go towards death. And everything that you do either tilts the world or tilts you towards that or tilts you towards the other. Um, really cool stuff. And so in section two, you'll see actually that the instructions regarding liturgy play the same role. These types of things will aim you towards life himself. Right. And so here we're going to take on uh, some of the central habits of the early church. So if you are curious about worship in the early church or the way that the early church interacted with uh, liturgy or what they did when they came together, this is a really important place to go, uh, because here we have the subjects of baptism, fasting, prayer, uh, communion and uh, and the proper prayers after the fact. Uh so let's let's dive into this because there's some really cool stuff in here. Concerning baptism. Now, a quick word. Again, we don't study church history so that we can come legitimize what we do. Okay? Nor do we come to church history going, hey, I want to remake myself into whatever that is. Because it doesn't matter where you sit down, early church, uh, apostolic church, like this is super early. Or even in the you know, first century, the, the scriptural churches, you know, those, everyone that the epistles were written to, there's such a diversity of ways and the struggles that people are having and how they're working through them. Uh, but it doesn't matter where you go in church history. Everybody is different, right? Don't, don't open the Didache and say, you know what? I'm going to solve all the baptismal debates by uh, jumping it back 1900 years, Right. At some point soon, we're going to be doing a deep dive on the restoration movements of the 19th century. Someone had written in and asked for that. Um, so like the Stone Campbell movements and so forth. So uh, we're working on that. But 
um, some of the desires of that were let's get back to the early church and do everything exactly as they do it there. And what, what's been learned in the, you know, century and a half since then is that the same thing will happen in restoration movements as happened in the early church. doesn't matter how you start out. Everything will come diversified and denominationalized going forward. It just does always because the invisible church was never meant to be controlled by a single visible church. It doesn't work like that. Nowhere in church history has that ever worked, uh, despite all the claims of Catholicism or anyone else. It doesn't work like that. It never has worked like that. And you can see that even here. Watch this, because I promise you, uh, it doesn't matter what baptismal habits you have in your church, they are not going to be reflected by what's written here. Chapter 7, paragraph 7 it is, section 2, uh, instructions regarding liturgy. This one's concerning baptism. Concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, which, by the way, he's referring to the first six paragraphs. Baptize them, uh, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, Matthew. Do this in living water. That is flowing water. River. But if you do not have flowing water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot do so, uh, and if you cannot do so in cold water, do so in warm. But if you have neither, Pour out water three times upon the head into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whoever else can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. <laughs> let me just say, in all the descriptions in church history of how we should baptize, I've never read anything quite like that. There are so many caveats and so many... This is one way to do it, but if you don't have that, do this. And if you don't have that, do this. And well, here's an ideal, but if you don't have that, you can do this. And the the language is reminiscent of, of to me, the first thing that comes to mind is the opening chapters of Leviticus, where, where, um, where God is describing to his people the way in which to carry out sacrifices. He's so specific take the lamb like this, cut this, get the, you know, the, the webbing around the, uh, around the stomach cuts out like this, the fat of the tail, this and all the, all the, oh, by the way, if you don't have that, you can do this animal. Oh, if you don't have that and you're too poor, then you can do turtle doves. It's that kind of wisdom that says, not everything is so easy as to write a description and say, this is how it's to be done. And that's it for end of story. This is meant to be a very practical help. Look at all the ways that you can do baptism that are legitimate in their mind. Uh, first, you have to tell them all the teachings, right? So it's the first six paragraphs there. Uh, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, ideally, so watch this. The mode should be in running water like a river. So that it, I, I, so that it doesn't express this, but I would imagine not only is that historically how a lot of the baptisms were done that we see in the scriptures, but also it, it, it shows this idea of washing away of sins. Uh, that it's in living water, but if you don't have living water, you don't have moving water. Baptize into other water. So, if if all you have is a lake with not moving water, then you can do that. Uh, and if you don't, uh, you know, if you if you have cold water, that's ideal. You can do it in warm water too. Now, as far as that's concerned, I will say we just had a baptism, uh, several baptisms at our church, and um, 
I apologize to the writer of the Didache. We looked at the river that was about 48 degrees, and then we looked at a pool that was 80 degrees, and we went with the we went with the easy one. We went in the pool that was sitting still at 80 degrees um, because it was just so comfy and nice. Um, so if you cannot do so in cold water, do so in warm. I apologize, writer of the Didache. Um, but if you have neither, pour out water three times. In other words, if you not only don't have running water and you don't have standing water and all you have is enough to have three cupfuls, then do that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized. So the, the one who's doing the baptism, the one who's being baptized, and whoever else is able to that's in attendance at the baptism. But again, it comes back down to the impetus lies at the baptized person to fast. Again, still the caveats, one or even two days before. Now, a lot of people might look at this and go, wow, that's a lot of rules. I actually see a whole lot of caveats. I see an open-mindedness to don't make this about the mode. Don't make this about the way you're doing it so much as the fact that we are doing it and what it is focused on, right? As far as for baptism, the whole point is to focus us forward. And that's why this doesn't occur by itself. Look at uh, paragraph eight, chapter eight, fasting and prayer. Let not your fast be with the hypocrites uh, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week. Uh, by the way, that is a pharisaical um, habit that was being done. Now, this is fascinating because after the destruction of the temple, that kind of habit died away pretty quick, um, <coughs> uh, at least as far as for really familiar life, you know, kind of in Syria and so forth. So this is one of those places where it can be argued. This is actually a much earlier work than 100. Um because this is a, uh, a reference to Jewish practices of the Pharisees, specific fasting on the second and the fifth day of the week. And they say, so rather fast on the fourth and on preparation day, Friday, uh, the sixth day of the week. Uh, do not pray like the hypocrites, but rather as the Lord commanded in his gospel, like this, again, stark reference straight up to Matthew. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we also forgive our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the power and the glory forever. Pray this three times each day. Again, wise advice. Scripture, Matthew again, uh, chapter 9, the Eucharist. Now this is even more so. Now concerning the Eucharist, communion, give thanks this way. Now stop for a second. From the earliest days, the church called this Eucharist Thanksgiving. Uh, communion was a much later term given to this. Uh, Eucharist was given to this in the early church specifically because that is the primary thing that we were doing when we come together for the cup and for the bread. Um. And concerning the Eucharist, then give thanks this way. That's literally what Eucharisto means, uh, is, is giving of thanks. Um, first, concerning the cup. We thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David, thy servant, uh, which you made to, uh, known to us through Jesus, thy servant. To thee be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread. We thank thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus, thy servant. 
To thee be the glory forever, even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one. So let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Now, this is, I just, I love these prayers. I love these prayers because one of the, one of the specific reactions to this um, is this, this idea of, of interacting with the elements of the Eucharistic feast and saying, first of all, he focuses on the cup and then the bread, which is notable. Uh, but then he actually prays more specifically about the bread that there is represented in bread. And he, he, he makes allusion to the, um, the, uh, the, the feeding of the 5,000 that's in all four gospels. It's the only miracle, by the way, that's in all four of them. And that it's scattered everywhere and then was gathered back together uh, in 12 baskets. And so the desire is just as uh, the bread was broken and scattered over the hills uh, and was gathered together to become one, so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. Again, very Matthew language, very kingdom of heaven oriented, just remarkable stuff. And then we have some instructions to this. But let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also, the Lord has said, give not that which is holy to the dogs. That's that's um, a lot of people hold to that. I will say that's not something I necessarily hold to. You can be wrong on baptism and still be a Christian. Um, so I would take issue with that. But as far as for the, uh, as far as for the uh, references here, let not eat uh, one of you uh, eat or drink of your Eucharist until, uh, or unless they have been baptized in the name of the Lord. Um, and so, again, we're dealing a lot with adult converts. Um, you're, you're talking about somebody eating or drinking of the Eucharist, but uh, baptism has to come first. Um, with that, you are dealing still very early on, probably almost entirely with adult converts. Um, you're you're looking at baptism uh, into the name of the Lord before they eat or drink the Eucharist. So. Um, Interesting stuff. Unless you take the um, <laughs> the the uh, Eastern Orthodox view of it, which is you you feed Eucharistic meals to uh, infants as well. So uh, anyhow, oh, so chapter ten, the prayer after communion. After you are filled, give thanks this way. Now, there's there's a lot of people that are, try to wonder what in the world's going on here. Is this is this like there is a whole lot of eating of the bread and the cup until you are filled? Or is there a whole nother meal that goes with this? The writer here does not make any distinction. Uh, it looks like either a meal came afterwards or they brought enough bread and wine to fill everyone. Either way, here's how you pray after, uh, after the Eucharist. We thank thee, Holy Father, uh, for thy holy name, uh, which, uh, which you did cause to tabernacle into our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality, which you made known to us uh, through Jesus thy servant, to thee be the glory forever. Thou, Master Almighty, didst create all things for thy name's sake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment, that they might give thanks to thee. But to us you didst freely give spiritual food and drink and life eternal through thy servant. Before all things we thank thee that you are mighty. To thee be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, thy church, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in thy love. Gather it from the four winds, sanctified for thy kingdom, which thou prepares for it. For thine is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come. Let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. Let If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not so, let him repent. Maranatha, which means Lord come. 
primarily in judgment. Amen. And then they add this little caveat at the end, but permit the prophets to make thanksgiving as much as they desire. It is, it is, I think it's just a remarkable thing. And what what an incredible prayer, by the way. What an incredible prayer. I mean, I I I I prayed most of my life, uh, and I don't think I've ever had a prayer as as as, as remarkable as that. Um, you know, you 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 look at something like this and you just you, you can you can hear them say this from 1900 years of history ago. And, and just looking forward to the, I mean, look at, look at the way that uh, they talk about this. Let grace come and let this world pass away. What, what an incredible sentence. Hosanna to the God of David, by the way. Uh, if anyone is holy, let him come and if anyone is not. So let him repent. Uh, Maranatha, in case you're not familiar, really has overtones with the arrival of the Lord in judgment. Uh, come judge this world. Amen. Uh, <laughs> uh, just a just a remarkable um, prayer there, uh, and one worth a lot of reflection on. And then, again, letting the prophets make thanksgiving as much as they desire after the Eucharist. So... Um, that there's part of liturgy that's just open to flexibility. And if there's anything that you get from the liturgy section of the Didache, it is being flexible. There's certain things that we're inflexible on, but on all the other stuff, we're as flexible as we can be. The important thing is baptism. It's not the exact thing. Yeah, there's ideal ways to do this, but there's all manner of ways to do this. And thankfully, a pool can actually fit into that. Uh, but when when you have things like fasting, whether it's one day or two, whether it's, you know, let's do it on these days instead. Um, you know, but again, the whole point of this is that we do not see ourselves as the center of our hope, but we look up to our father who's in heaven. We look to the scriptures. Uh, we look to the arrival of Christ in, in full, um, uh, in, in full judgment of the world. Let grace come and let this world pass away. I, I mean, I tell you what, if, if any of you preach sermons, that is a remarkable sermon title. <laughs> let grace come and let this world pass away. What an incredible thing. All right. Uh, section three on church order and leadership. This is actually the last of the big sections. And then the last section, section four, is uh, is a single paragraph. So uh, we'll make a beeline through all of this. I don't want to uh, go too late, but um, what, what, an incredible, uh, what an incredible book. Let's keep going through this. Concerning teachers, apostles, and prophets. Whosoever therefore comes and teaches you all the things that have been said before, receive him. In other words, if, if somebody is a traveling teacher, uh, apostle, prophet, whatever the case may be, if they're going to teach you to the way of life, great, receive him. But if the teacher turn, himself turns and teaches another doctrine to the destruction of this, in other words, if his teaching leads to death, don't hear him. But if he teaches so as to increase righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord, receive him as you would the Lord. Right again. So the so the concept here isn't so much that uh, you just look at exactly what they say every single time. You you know the type. Uh, it's in church uh, looking to bounce on any single word that is said out of turn. Consider the whole of their life. Consider the whole of their doctrine and the whole of their teaching. Does it push the church onto life or onto death? <coughs> Are they teaching in accordance with these things, in accordance with wisdom, in accordance with the scriptures and the way of life? 
Let's keep going. But concerning the apostles and prophets, act according to the decree of the gospel. Let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord. But he shall not remain more than one day or two days if there's a need. But if he remains three days, he is a false prophet. Now, here it, it's understandable if you get a little mixed up. There is a lot of interchange between uh, the role of prophet and apostle and bishops and deacons and the role of teacher and the role of prophet, sometimes held by ones that aren't actually in that office. So um, you, there's a lot of overlap here uh, with regards to this. And so it's it's a little bit difficult to pull apart. And I'm not going to try to solve it all here. Uh, it's just making passing note of it. If you're confused, yeah, that's that's everyone is. Uh, and when the apostle goes away, let him take nothing but bread until he lodges. And if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, health and wealth gospel, guys. Take note. Uh, if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. There's, there's absolutely no caveats, no deeper reasoning. It's just straight up that leads to death. Uh, I, I find that comical. Uh, and every prophet who speaks in the spirit, you shall neither try nor judge for every sin shall be forgiven, but this sin shall not be forgiven. Uh, but not everyone, excuse me, but not everyone who speaks in the spirit is a prophet, but only if he holds to the ways of the Lord. Again, now we have tests for prophets. Uh, we need to analyze their life. We need to actually see, are they in keeping with one who bears the spirit of the Lord? Now we have something new, right? In their concept, um, one of the ways that wisdom has taught them to delineate whether or not a prophet is true or not in the age of the Spirit of God is, does their life match what they're saying? Right? Do they hold to the ways of the Lord? Because it's not as simple as it was in Deuteronomy, where a false prophet, you would just know if something that they say is going to happen, then it doesn't happen. That's a false prophet. Here, you can actually just look at them. Look at their life. Do they hold to the way of life? Do they hold to the ways of the Lord? Or do they hold to the ways of death? What's the outcome of it? Just because somebody's a pastor, if they're lecherous, if they're chasing after women, if they are greedy for money, um, do not follow them. Do not listen to what they have to say. They are leading you to death. Good reasoning. Therefore, from their ways shall the false prophet and the prophet be known. And every prophet who orders a meal in the spirit and does not eat it unless he is indeed a false prophet. And every prophet who teaches the truth but does not do what he teaches is a false prophet. And every prophet proved true working under the mystery of the uh, of the church in the world, yet not teaching others to do what he himself does shall not be judged among you. For with God he has his judgment. For so did also the ancient prophets. But whoever says in the spirit, give me money or something else, you shall not listen to him. But if he tells you to give for others' sake who are in need, let no one judge him. Again, we have some of these squishy, confusing things in the early church hammered out, ironed out, and tried to make clear by using the wisdom that Scripture gives and the wisdom that Christian living gives and trying to help other churches determine whether these traveling itinerant preachers and prophets are legit or not. <clears> Twelfth <throat> paragraph. And good on you if you're sticking through with this. We'll get there. There's only 16 paragraphs. But receive everyone who comes in the name of the Lord. This is about the reception of Christians in general. And prove and know him afterward, for you shall have understanding right and left. 
If he who comes is a wayfarer, assist him as far as you are able, but he shall not remain with you more than two or three days. Again, uh, we're not looking to encourage freeloading in the church just because we're all nice. Uh, two or three days, if need be. But if he wants to stay with you and is an artisan, let him work and eat. But if he has no trade, according to your understanding, see to it that as a Christian, he shall not live with you as idle. But if he wills not to do, he is a Christ monger. Watch that you keep away from such. This is remarkable stuff because the New Testament talks about this as well. Uh, and it does come from a time period in history uh, where such things did indeed happen with regularity. It happens a lot today, too. We're just afraid to say anything about it. Um, idle. I, what was what was the way of it? Uh, what was the wisdom from um, oh, a couple generations back? Uh, idle hands of the devil's playthings, right? Uh, the idea of a Christian coming and being a freeloader off of other Christians and not doing anything uh, is considered problematic in the highest degree, right? Uh, okay, so chapter 13 or paragraph 13, support of the prophets. But every true prophet who wants to live among you is worthy of his support. So also a true teacher is himself worthy as the workman of his support. Every first fruit, therefore, of the products of wine press and the threshing floor of oxen and sheep you shall take and give to the prophets, for they are your high priests. But if you have no profit, give it to the poor. If you make a batch of dough, take the first fruit and give according to the commandments. So also, uh, when you open a jar of wine or oil, take the first fruits and give it to the prophets. And of money, silver, or clothing, or every possession, take the first fruit as it may seem good to you and give according to the commandment. Again, here we, we are not looking at percentages. We are not looking at anything. We're looking at generosity. And we're looking at specifically the support of those who are teaching and passing on the word of God. Uh, really unique. Uh, descriptions here, uh, very detailed descriptions here to just try to bring together a whole picture of it. This isn't to say that we we put these burdens on people so that they can look at you know the dough here or this and that. This is not hard and fast rules. This is this is showing you what life looks like. If somebody is investing into you the word of the Lord, they they are worthy to be supported so that they can continue to do that. It's not just for their sake; it's for yours too. To have somebody watch over your soul. That is actually a good thing. And here they uh, refer it to it. Chapter 14, or paragraph 14. Uh, Christian assembly is on the Lord's day. But every Lord's day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one who is at odds with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled. Again, here we have uh, Matthew 18 uh, and several other places. That your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord. In every place and time, offer to me a pure sacrifice, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. Uh, it is simply remarkable that uh, such things, when we when we are addressing uh, the way that the early church lived, um, we're not sitting here trying to spell out uh, every aspect of life, but really, as it's saying, the things that actually lead towards life itself. Um, and here he, of course, quotes from uh, the book of Malachi, um, here expressing one of the natures of, of uh, gathering together, right? Um, and again, Lord's Day, what do we do? We gather together. There, enough said. And that doesn't happen online. <clears throat> anyway, all right, chapter 15, paragraph 15, right? Uh, last of the section three. Bishops and deacons and Christian correction, right? Appoint yourself, therefore... Uh, bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, men that are meek, 
not lovers of money, and truthful and proved, for they also render to you the service of prophets and teachers. Now, this is what I meant earlier when I say the the roles and the jobs and the offices, it all gets really kind of mixed together. Bishops and deacons taking along the service of prophets and teachers. Therefore, it says, do not despise them, for they are your honored ones, together with the prophets and teachers. So not only do the bishops and deacons carry out the roles of prophets and teachers, there's also prophets and teachers that carry out this role as well. And reprove one another. Don't do it in anger. Do it in peace, as you have it in the gospel. Uh, the inability of some people in the church to correct people without anger uh, is is a, a real issue uh, for uh, for a consideration of Christian maturity or even virtue at all. Um, and so what do we do? What do we do? We are to reprove one another absolutely when we are wrong, but not in anger. We're to do so in peace as we have it in the gospel. But to anyone who acts amiss against another, let no one speak, nor let him hear anything from you until he repents. Uh, this, is, this is a really interesting way to look at uh, these things, something I certainly understand. Um, when somebody comes in with just hot anger and all of this stuff, basically he needs to repent. Don't try to reason with this. Uh, Jesus says the same kind of concept. You, you're not going to accomplish anything by, uh, by doing this. Uh, let's see. Uh, but your prayers and alms and all your deeds so do as you have in the gospel, have it in the gospel of our Lord. So that is the wrapping up of kind of church order and leadership section uh, really unique descriptions here. We have, uh, all manner of offices in the early church and responsibilities and itinerant traveling preachers. And how do we deal with this when somebody just comes in and they're irate and angry? How do we, you know, what do we do? And so again, we're not sitting here saying this is the only way to handle all issues. It's saying these are issues that have come up in the early church. We've had to address it. Here's some wisdom on how to address it. Uh, maybe helpful. In fact, definitely is helpful. When you come to the very end of this, uh, the, the 16th paragraph here, um, I, I love this. I, I love this because it takes the focus of all that has come before it, all of these ways of life, ways of death, uh, ways of doing liturgy that leads to life, uh, ways of order and leadership that, that work towards life rather than, uh, rather than just trying to be nice to everyone. Well, that's just a confused way to live, right? You know, it, it just is. There is there's a certain responsibility that Christians have towards the household of faith. Yes, we do good to all, but we especially do good to the household of faith. That is scripture. And here they're trying to decide and delineate how this all practically works out. And that's the way of, that is the way of wisdom, trying to be skillful at living. Let's look at this last paragraph and then we'll close up on it. This is section four, as some people delineate it. Uh, conclusion and the coming of the Lord. Watchfulness. Watch for your life's sake. Again, this is the way of life. Let not your lamps be quenched. Quote from Jesus, of course, or references to Jesus. Nor your loins unloosed, but be ready. For you know not the hour in which your Lord will come, but come together often. Seeking the things which are uh, which are befitting to your souls, for the whole time uh, of your faith will not profit you if you are not made perfect in the last time. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, the whole focus is upon that last time when all of this will come together. That whole focus is going to be 
the way of life that ends at our souls being made perfect. You know, what, what, what will it profit us to walk the way of life only to turn to the way of death again? It's, it's such a unique way of describing the Christian life. And it's something that I'm actually, I will say, I learned a lot from studying the Didache uh, in preparation for tonight, because there was, there's such a, there's such a beautiful way to look at the Christian life as this thing that at any point uh, I could prove unworthy of this and go towards the way of death. And so there is a necessity of wisdom. Now, again, if we're going to talk about pure theology and the perseverance of the saints, yes, of course, those who are truly saved will indeed be saved in the end. But there is something to be said for anticipating and looking for the coming of the Lord in the way in which he describes it in the book of Revelation. He who endures to the end will be saved. That kind of long focus. It's important. And boy, does it make us patient. So read it with that in mind. But come together often, seeking the things which are befitting to your souls, for the whole time of your faith will not profit you if you are not made perfect in the last time. For in the last days, false prophets and corruptors shall be multiplied, and the sheep shall be turned into wolves. In other words, there's actually going to be real world and real life risk of apostasy. Those who look like sheep, act like sheep, thought they were sheep, and everyone else thought they were sheep that end up being wolves. Love shall be turned into hate. For when lawlessness increases, they shall hate and persecute and betray one another, and then shall appear the world deceiver as son of God, and shall do signs and wonders, and the earth shall be delivered into his hands, and he shall do iniquitous things which have never yet come to pass since the beginning. Then shall the creation of men come into the fire of trial, and many shall be made to stumble and shall perish, but those who endure in their faith shall be saved from the under the curse itself. And then shall appear the signs of the truth, first the sign of the outspreading in heaven, and the sign of the sound of the trumpet, and third the resurrection of the dead, yet not of all, but as it is said, the Lord shall come and all his saints with him, and then shall the world see the Lord coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that is an incredible passage. Um, he obviously quotes from Zechariah there at the end. Uh, he is quoting from Second Thessalonians. He is quoting from uh, so many different places, First Thessalonians uh, as well, <coughs> uh, expressing this reality that uh, the entirety of the Christian life is focused on the way of life and the culmination of it, which is the coming of Christ, both not just in salvation and resurrection, but also in judging the world. Let grace come and let this world end. Uh, what an incredible thing to express about all of this, to, to say that the entirety of the Christian life is spent focused on the future hope of Christ. And the uh, result of that is making the decisions that are consistent with that today. Uh, I find that just absolutely fascinating. Ken, you ask a question. You say, how widespread was the Didache in its day? We do not know. We really don't know. It had to be a lot. It had to be very widespread because we have multiple fragmentary evidence of it in at least six different languages. Uh, and so if if that's the case, well, not if that's the case, since that's the case, we know that it was widespread and it was used widely. It, so much so that 300 and 400 years later, it was already, it was being quoted 
uh, side by side with uh, with works like the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas and things like this, things that we will read at a later date and analyze. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and say we have every reason to believe that this was incredibly widespread throughout the early church. This was not just something that was local from one church helping another church. Uh, it was preserved for a reason historically. It means it was significant, and it was translated in multiple languages, which means that did not just come to Alexandria and sit in a library. That was used all sorts of places. Um, so extremely widespread, which means it influenced a whole lot of people. Um, and it really does kind of open a door into the early church in a way that we just don't see very often. Um, and I'm really grateful we have this because it is one of those, it is one of those things where it could have stayed lost to history. I mean, literally, if we didn't find that um manuscript of it in the 1870s, um, we still would have no idea what it was. We would know it existed, but we wouldn't know what it said. Um so let me let me add some caveats here at the end, uh, here for the last five minutes, and then we'll end class tonight. Because I really wanted to, with with a work as important and as uh, early as this, I really did want to read it in its entirety and kind of interact as we went along. But there's a couple of caveats I'm going to say here at the end. Um, kind of the so what factor. What what are we to do with this in the modern church? Right? Are we to just understand it as a cute historical thing? No. Th this, I will say, is the same reason why I always teach church history. And why, if 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 God gives me energy and opportunity, I will teach church history for the rest of my life because I I love learning the wisdom of other ages. There's there's some difficult sections in this work, to be sure, uh, to try to work around what exactly was the role of traveling prophets in the early church. That's something we really can't answer fully. Uh, we we don't have enough information to actually plot that out. We have references to it in Ephesians 4, for instance. That's not just Old Testament prophets. We have certain prophets in the book of Acts. Uh, maybe that would be a good deep dive some week is prophets in the early church, uh, simply because I'm curious about it now. Um, but that would kind of fill in some gaps. But I do know we have massive gaps uh, in the knowledge about it, what exactly they were doing and uh, what the habit was. Um, so what I'm going to say is some caveats on this. Don't, don't model, don't seek to, if you're out there doing a church plant, don't, don't try to model your church after this. Don't do that. They wouldn't recommend you do that. Um, not to say that they think they're wrong or something like this, but we are in a different place than they are. They would tell you to aim at the same way of life that they describe, but they're not going to use the same terminology, uh, uh, you know, of, 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 you know, doubting that you have access to living water in a, in a world where we can travel so much, we have access to it. And so they're not going to add all these caveats to things like this, but they probably add different caveats to it. Uh, who knows? Uh, it, it's just really fascinating. Uh, but we have this, we have this picture of, of pursuing the way of life and uh, almost in very wisdom literature style, just kind of displays what living as a Christian feels like and looks like. Um, uh, another another thing not to do this with don't don't come here and try to validate your church's practice. Um, again, this isn't the purpose that we come to church history for. But when it comes to documents in the church, when we hear it with their own language or with their own words, it's much more tempting for us to come back and go, oh, oh, oh see, uh, this matches up with what I do with that. Therefore, what I do is right. Um, that's not how you use this. You use this to see the church at a place in its infancy 
working through some of the practical struggles of its day, aiming at heaven and the coming of the Lord, both with power and with great glory, with grace and to end this world. Kind of remarkable. Um, and it really helps us to understand how a specific set of churches in a specific area functioned. And obviously from the very existence of this, uh, means that not all churches at that point functioned like this, which is why this kind of instruction manual exists. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Why? Because the other churches weren't exactly doing that, which means if we received a description of another church doing something somewhere else, it would look different. Uh, so don't, you know, you know, this whole um, thing of restoring, trying to get back to the early church, look, you're, you're never, you're never, one, you're not going to do that. Two, God doesn't have you born in the first century for a reason. All right, let me speak to you a little bit more pastoral, right? God did not make a mistake in having you born for the 21st century, if that's where you live, which I know everyone listening for the next, you know, 80 years is in the 21st century. God did not have you born into the century by accident. You are here by design. The people who wrote the Didache are not here by design. They are there by design. You are here by design. This is intentional. And we carry on. We are given wonderful gifts and wisdom through the scriptures, primarily through Christ, through the spirit of God, and through the testimony and fellowship of Christians. This is an extension of fellowship. Open your mind to the wisdom that's in it. And let's move on. And I think it's fantastic. I, I love it. I hope you love it a little bit more. Um, and some of these deep dives, the writings of church histories, uh, I know we never get uh, ex um, shown uh, some of these, especially in church settings, which is fine. Um, but I just wanted to walk through it with you. I'm glad you were able to come along for the journey. If you're still listening, you know, good, good, good on you. Hour, 17 minutes listening to a 1900 year old document, but I hope you can see the value of such things. Um, I'm going to end it there, uh, to keep this, uh, uh, you know, under some of the longer form ones. Um, and uh, Lord's blessings to you all. Uh, I pray that the wisdom of deep history continues to challenge you to uh, be patient for the coming of the Lord um, and the end of this world. Let me uh, let me finish off with the same uh, description that they had there. Uh, may grace come and may the end of this world come. Amen. <laughs>